If you have a Bible, if you would turn it, please, to 1 John, the very end of chapter 2, verse 28, to start, and we'll move into verse chapter 3. But if you're using the Pew Bible, you'd turn to page 1022, and you'd be on the right spot. A few months ago, I read an article that explained how much it would take, how much financially it would cost uh, for one of the apostles to write one of the New Testament letters. And, and really, the, the big expense, they didn't necessarily factor in the expense of, you know, time and labor as much as they did literally the, the, the writing material, the, the papyrus that they literally wrote on. And, and they didn't refer to 1 John, but if I kind of did some of my comparison and math right, to write 1 John, it would have probably cost John potentially somewhere in the neighborhood of $700 to write those five chapters. Now, when I read that, I'll be honest, there's a gene inside me called my cheapness gene that kind of fired. Like 700 bucks for five, like that just didn't compute out in my head. Um, I'll be honest, I, I've had to write two long academic documents and I struggled with how much I had to pay. The only thing I've ever had in a library, in an official library, is something I've paid to put in there. And I struggled, well, I have to pay to get that in there? Yeah, you do. Okay, well, I struggled with that, but they were a little longer than five chapters, five, not many verses. And I began to think, what would it take for me to really spend that kind of money? Well, there would have to be a really good reason. There would have to be something critical that had to be communicated. What motivated John to write the letter? There was something critical. And really, I think that critical thing is where we start this morning in 1 John chapter 2 in verse 28. Something he said has got to be communicated. So verse 28 says these words, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The critical thing in John's mind that needed to be communicated was that followers of the Lord Jesus need to be confident in their relationship with Jesus. Okay, John is writing because he wants people to have an increasing certainty and a, a decreasing anxiety and, and confusion. He wants people who know Jesus to be very confident, to, to not be wondering, should I be ashamed about things? No, he wants people to be confident. Well, how can you live like that? How can you and I truly live confidently? Well, look again at verse 28. I mean, this idea of what's the key to confidence, kind of look again at verse 28 when it says these words, okay? Kind of for emphasis, now little children abide in Him. Why? So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. Okay, confidence. You want to, where's the key to confidence? How can I live a confident life? John says, by abiding in Jesus. Now, we've used the word abide a number of times in this series. It shows up in John's writings a number of times, and I don't know if we've defined it real, real well, so let me give you a little bit of sort of an operating definition. When we say abide, what are we talking about? Well, part of what we are talking about in a broad way is really talking about living in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, okay? To abide means I'm in a relationship, and that relationship with God starts by me turning from sin to God and trusting the Lord Jesus. So now I've entered into a relationship, 
And then through that relationship, I'm trying to live in relationship with God. And that relationship then, abiding means looking at things that the gospel of John kind of draws out about abiding. It means I'm trusting. It means I'm praying. It means I'm obeying. And it means I'm looking for my joy in Jesus. Okay, so when we talk about abiding, we're talking about a lifestyle. I'm living in a way where I'm trusting, I'm praying, I'm obeying, and I'm finding my joy. I'm choosing to look for my joy in the Lord Jesus. Now, here's something that I think is significant for us to notice. There's words you could use sort of synonymous to abiding. You could say abiding in Jesus is very much like loving God. I mean, in essence, it's the same thing. It's a synonymous terms. And the reason I point that out is because the Lord Jesus will tell us His words in John chapter 14, verse 21, and in John chapter 14, verse 23. Part of loving Jesus is obeying Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, if you're doing that, if you're abiding in that way, if you're living in that way, I just need you to know that my Father is going to love you I'm going to love you, and I'm going to disclose myself. We're going to manifest ourselves to you. As you and I obey, as you and I love Him, as you and I abide in Him, we're deepening our relationship with God. We get to know God the Father and God the Son better and better, richer and deeper. And John wants us to understand when you're doing that, when you're abiding like that, up goes the confidence. Up it goes. It's not a distant relationship. It's now close, and I can really know Him. I can be confident in Jesus. Well, it's great to say that, but how does that actually work? How is it that if you and I choose to follow that command of abide, that this confidence happens? I mean, John says it does happen. Jesus says it does happen, but how does it happen? And that's really where this next section kind of John writes to help us see, here's how it happens. In essence, if you and I are abiding in Jesus, John's going to tell us there's three revolutions. And by revolution, I don't mean going around something. I mean revolution in terms of such a radical change that it is a revolution, that our lives are going to be radically changed. And as we abide and we begin to see that revolution in our lives and flow out of our lives, That's where our confidence comes from. Now, that's not the only place our confidence comes from, but John wants to focus in and say, here's where your confidence can come from. As you abide, here's what's going to happen. So three revolutions. Revolution number one would be this, transformed action. Okay, transformed action. Look at verse 29 with me. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, this is a bit of an odd passage in 1 John. I'm going to point out a few things where it's a little bit odd. But right here, it goes from verse 28 to verse 29. It's a really abrupt change. And John's done this a few times. He kind of writes that way sometimes. It's very abrupt. We don't know exactly how did he get from verse 28 to verse 29. But verse 29 in itself is really clear. We don't understand the connection, but what he said is really clear. And really clear is, starts out this way. He said, hey, I want to remind you, God is righteous. I want you to know God is righteous. And what he means by that is, at the core of God's being, by nature, by who God is in in his character, God is simply righteous. He is the definition of it. 
Now to John, that has huge implications. If God is righteous, there's a huge ramification of that, and that is if somebody is practicing righteousness, if you look at somebody's life and sort of the, the, the major flow of their life, the major direction of their life is righteous, John says that tells you something about that person, and that is that they are born of God. Okay, the end of the verse, born of Him, born of God. Now, that phrase we know from, from John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and from the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that to be born of God means you've gone, you've gone from sin to God, you've turned from sin to God, and you trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Okay, to be born of God means you've entered into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, which means you're now a part of God's family in that sense, okay? And families have traits, okay? I got to stick to my notes, and I can tell you some. So, like, when we get the text, okay, I got a text with the first picture. What do you do? You make it as big as possible on your phone because you have old eyes, and then you're going, who does he look like, Right? How many of you do that when you see a picture of a baby or see a baby? Who do they look like? Why? Because there's family resemblance. And John is saying there's a family resemblance here. You see, if you've been born of God, that righteous thing that's in him, that trait of him, that part of his nature, that begins to bubble in us. And as it bubbles in us, we're then going to practice righteousness. Okay, as you and I grow in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, as we abide in Him, part of the revolutionizing in my life is that trait becomes a part of my life. And as that trait becomes a part of my life, there's this righteousness then that comes kind of out of me. We start to practice it. We start to embrace it. Now, a good question to ask is, well, how does that happen? How is it that because I know some things about myself and Righteous is not there by nature, not by me. So how is it that I can become righteous and live out verse 29? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, the very next verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The thing that makes the revolution possible, the thing that makes it possible for you and I to become righteous and live righteous is the incredible love of God. Okay, I want you to focus in on that phrase, what kind of love? Now, that may seem like a very bland phrase in English, but that's really expressing something huge about love. Some of the commentators would say that expression basically means John's talking about a foreign love. Now, by foreign, he doesn't mean like from another country. He means something well beyond earth. This is a love that isn't an earthly love. It isn't normal. I mean, a lot of times we kind of live in a world where love is based upon performance. You know, if you do really well, then somebody's going to love you. And a lot of us have struggled in our lives because we don't feel love because we look at our performance and we think love's just about performance. And John is saying, that's not exactly how this love works. It 
kind of, it isn't from an earthly realm. It's not about our performance. In fact, if you were to look at the whole story of the gospel, if I was to use words that describe us biblically before Jesus, you would describe us as words as dead, as enemies who are in rebellion to God. That's who we are prior. And yet, what it tells us is, well, we are those things. God loves us. In fact, God says to you and me as dead enemies who are in rebellion to Him, I'd like you to join my family. And I don't want you just to join my family. I want you to share in the inheritance of my son. Does that seem normal to you? It's not meant to seem normal to us in a sense. But there's that incredible, amazing love. And the thing that revolutionizes our lives isn't because we try harder. It is because of that incredible love. See, the way your life and my life can be revolutionized is by receiving the love that I don't deserve. A love I will never merit, a love I will never be able to earn, but a love I simply receive because He loves me and then I just start living with that love flowing in me. And please, John's love isn't just that God's going to love you in that moment. It kind of goes beyond that. Look at verse 2. This love is huge right now, but it goes beyond verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you've trusted Christ, you are a member of the family of God. You have a seat at the big kids, at the parents' table, you know, the, the, the living, the dining room table. You've got a seat there right next to the Father. You're there. But it goes on and says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when we know that, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God's love is so revolutionary. It's not just about loving us right in this moment. But God's love is going to take us all the way to our lives, literally being changed and transformed to where we will be like Jesus when he appears. Now John says, I don't totally know what that means. I don't know how to dissect it and explain it all. So I, I, if John didn't, I certainly can't. But he says, that's who we're going to be. And it's like, how can that be possible? How can we be changed in such a radical way? Because of the love of God. And because the love of God can do a huge work in a person's life. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. If you and I are abiding in the hope that not only does God love us, but God's love is going to completely and fully transform us when Jesus returns, then John says that's going to ignite in us this desire to be pure, this desire to move away from displeasing God, away from playing with stuff, playing with stuff I shouldn't play with, and actually be drawn closer to God. I'm going to be changed so that the actions of my life literally are transformed. 
huge thing. Where will my confidence come from? My confidence comes as I abide in the hope of what Jesus is going to do in my life. All of a sudden, I start to see as he's changing me, things flowing out of my life are different. And there's a transformation. A transformation I need, but a transformation he can bring. Okay, revolution number one, transformed action. Revolution number two, second huge change in us is that we will move from rebellion to relationship. Okay, there's going to be a moving in our lives away from rebellion to relationship. Now, this is sort of a quick aside, but it's not an insignificant aside. As we come to verses 4 to 10, we are probably coming to arguably the most difficult verses in all of 1 John. And here's the kicker. If you do research, you go home or you start doing it now because you have a smartphone and all of that, you're going to see a whole lot of different views on this and everybody's going to say, well, it could be this or it could be this or it could be this or it could be this. So what you're going to get from me is my could be. But what I think what I'm going to try to communicate is as difficult as these verses can be, John wrote these verses to encourage us so that we would really grow in confidence. And I think that's what he's trying to communicate. Not easy, okay? So let's start by just, we kind of got to walk through the verses a little bit methodically. So verse 4 is kind of where the rebellion idea starts, okay? Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, and we need to understand something. In the background here, and we've said this before, in 1 John there were these false teachers that were going around saying a lot of things. And part of what they were saying is, hey, you can be in a relation, you can claim to be in a relationship with God and sin all you want. And John is saying here in verse 4, um, there's a little rub there with that logic. You see, if basically if, if your life is about sinning, Okay. The direction of your life is you just kind of want to sin. Um, you're also practicing lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Why does he draw that out? Because when he's saying sin is lawlessness, one thing all the commentaries seem to agree on at this point is by bringing in lawlessness, he's saying this is talking about rebellion. So John's point is how can you say you're in a relationship with God if the whole trajectory of your life is a life of rebellion against God. Okay, this may be a silly analogy, but it would be like being in 1776 and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams saying, we are tight with the King of England. We are best buds. Really? Really? That's what John is saying. That's what they're wanting to do. It doesn't work. If you're sinning, that's rebellion. Not only does he say that's rebellion, but understand that's an issue. Look at verse 5. John continues writing. He says, you know that he appeared, referring to Jesus, that Jesus appeared, why? In order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. Okay, with rebellion in our minds, John is saying, hey, Remember, why did Jesus come? Jesus came first Christmas. That's really what he's referring to here. The first Christmas. Why did Jesus show up? Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 tells us he came to take away the sins of his people. 
John's telling us the same thing. Jesus came to deal with sin. See, Jesus doesn't want us tied to sin. He wants to move us away from it. He wants to move us and put us in a place where we can be reconciled to God and be in relationship with God. Now, the whole thing that makes that possible, this kind of goes back to last week, is because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is without sin, He can do this. He can move us from being in a place of rebellion over there to being reconciled to God and being in a relationship with Him. And from John's understanding, that being brought into a relationship radically changes us, revolutionizes us. Okay, now look at verse 6 with me because it kind of explains that. No one who abides in Him, okay, you're abiding, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Honestly, folks, this is one of the verses that makes everybody's head spin. Okay, but I think what John is saying, he's not saying you never, ever, ever sin again because he's already said we do that in chapter one. But what I think he's saying is if a person trusts the Lord Jesus as his or her Savior and you are abiding in Jesus, you're abiding in that relationship, yes, you may struggle with temptation and yes, sometimes you will give in to the temptation. But really, there's going to be a movement in your life that you're going to want to move away from that rebellion. You're going to want to live not just knowing I could be reconciled, but be reconciled, be in a relationship. And you're going to see that part of what's going to flow out from your lives isn't a direction towards sin, but a direction toward God. We're going to move there. Okay, he's saying your life needs to be changed. You receive the Lord Jesus. He does a work in us. We are changed. This isn't a joke. This is to John. This is incredibly serious because he begins verse 7 by saying, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived on this. The false teachers were saying, you can do anything you want. He's saying, no, you can't. But it's not, just about, it's not about our ability, though. It's about what's the gospel going to do. Look at verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Okay, it's family resemblance again. He's saying, if you know God, righteousness means you're going to start living and acting like God. You're going to have a transformation because you've moved from the rebellion to relationship, and in that family relationship, you're changed. You know, if people wanted to debate whether or not I am my father's son, all you really need to do is put up a picture, and it's pretty obvious whose son I am. The only difference is my dad still has eyebrows. I mean, that's about the only difference. It's a little creepy to look in the mirror every morning and go, whoa. And when I was this age, you know, when my dad was the age I am now, I was in high school and I'm like, no wonder dad looked old and tired. And if you ever wondered if it was my mother's son, you just watch us walk or waddle. I've got the family waddle. Why? Because family resemblance. And John is saying, if you've trusted Christ, there's going to be this resemblance because the righteousness, God's going to be touching you. God's going to be moving in you. And 
Folks, here's where the confidence kicks in. As you and I are abiding in that relationship and so this righteousness thing is bubbling up, this family resemblance thing starts to be expressed, we can begin to look at our lives and see, whoa, I look a whole lot like my dad, my heavenly father. I don't know if you've ever experienced those things. You do certain things. There's certain hand motions I do, and it's like, that's my dad. I laugh, and the kids go, you sound just like grandma. That's what we're talking about. My confidence goes up. I know I belong to them. I'm changed. I belong to God. Okay. Revolution number one, transformed action because of what God does, family resemblance issue. Revolution number two, I move from rebellion to relationship. There's, again, family resemblance transformation taking place. And then number three, he kind of plays another analogy. I get a third changes. I get a new king and I get new DNA. New king and new DNA. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, first part of verse 8 sounds a whole lot like verse 6, a little bit of a twist. Here he's saying, if the direction of your life, if what you're consumed about is sinning, you need to understand something about your life, and that is you are of the devil. Now, to say you are of the devil really there is referring to the fact that you are living and operating as if the devil is the king. The one you are bending the knee to is ultimately the evil one. Now, you might think you're doing it on your own, but he's saying, no, you're bending the knee to the devil. But the second half of verse 8, which sounds very similar to verse 5, says there's another option. Using the formal title of the Son of God, John is reminding us that when Jesus came, he came to deal with, to destroy the works of of the devil. He came to destroy the kingdom of the devil. He came to make it possible to destroy that kingdom and to rescue us from that kingdom and put him in his kingdom. Colossians 1 will use that phrase, verses 13 and 14. We go from the dominion of darkness, the evil one, to the kingdom of God's beloved son, which means we have a new king. There is one we are to bend the knee to. God is our king. And that's meant to make a difference. Verse 9. No one born of God. Okay, you're in a different king. Born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Okay, look very carefully at the words born of God and seed of God. Okay, what he's talking about there, again, is another bit of family resemblance issue here, kind of beating in what it means to be in the family. He's also talking about that when we receive a new king, we are part of a new kingdom, being born of God and seed of God, he's kind of talking about there's a change that's going to take place in us. Now, most likely the expression, the seed of God or God's seed, is probably an analogy or a picture of the Holy Spirit. Whenever a person trusts the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit becomes a part of that person's life. And a huge reason why the Holy Spirit becomes a part of a person's life is really to lead that person 
to be changed. The Holy Spirit, you could say, is a catalyst in our lives to change us almost to the level to which what's flowing out of our life is different. It's as if we got new DNA. So at, a very, at the very base level, things begin to change in us. We are not the same. The Holy Spirit, through things like conviction and correction and encouragement and empowerment, is leading us, moving us, that our life really is transformed. We're living like we have a new king because he's doing something in our DNA so that the outflow of my life is different. And John, I think, wants us to understand that this transformation, this new DNA, this new kingdom thing is going to be obvious. It's going to be evident. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says these words, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Very practical, John says. This change in me, this radical change, is going to impact even how I treat other people. How we treat other people in the body of Christ. How we interact with one another. It's a revolution he brings. You know, in preparing for today, I read and then I listened to a couple of sermons and so I heard, hey, John's goal in this section, all of this stuff is to encourage us. That's why he wrote this. He wants to encourage us. And then I read the commentaries. You know, actually, I read the Bible first and went, I'm going to need a little help here. And then I read the commentaries, and they were confusing. And I thought, great, I'm going to stand up here and confuse people. That's really going to encourage people. And I'll be honest, I read verse 6 and I read verse 9, and I come away going, ooh, I'm not as far along this path as I'd like to be. And are those verses describing me? And I, can, I literally can remember guys in seminary having this debate on these verses, what do they mean? And you'd see the debate end because everybody's like, we don't know and this makes us really uncomfortable. So I, I did. I sat in my office and thought, now, if I just picked up in chapter 3, verse 11, would anybody notice? If I just skip this section, would anybody notice? Had I known that my grandson was going to be born today, I could just tell stories about my grandson who I haven't met yet. You know, I didn't, I, I, could I just skip it? These verses are harder to understand. And so if I've confused you this morning, I've done my job, so to speak. But folks, when things are hard to understand, they're hard to apply. But John wrote these for a critical reason. Look again at chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back, not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John wrote this so we'd be confident. And for us to be confident, we need to abide. Okay? The only way you and I are really going to have confidence in our relationship with God is if we are abiding. And please understand this. A lot is confusing, but this is very clear. That's the direct command of these verses. Abide. 
And to abide means you and I need to make a definitive act, a definitive act of our wills. We need to choose again and again and again to abide. It's almost daily. I need to choose. I'm going to abide in Christ. So really quickly, let me take that idea of you need to make a choice and give you three what I think are, for me, three applications for me connected to these verses so that we do abide, so that we grow in confidence, okay? Choice number one is we need to submit to the king, okay? If verses eight to 10 really are about a new king, then I better bend the knee to this new king, Because I might think, I don't need a new king. Yes, you do. If I'm really going to move in that sense, if I'm going to experience this new king, I submit to him, which means I need to make the choice. I need to move away from my selfishness. I need to move away from thinking, I've got it figured out. And I need to submit to him and be consumed to do his will. Now, here's a really quick question. How many of you like submitting? Motivational cause here. Why would you do it? Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The thing that should motivate us to make any of these choices, the thing that would move me to abide, His love. His amazing love. Choice number two. I also, I think, we need to choose to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, if verses four to seven really are about moving from rebellion to relationship so that my relationship impacts my life and that is all wrapped around this idea of family resemblance, then you know what I should want to be? What I should desire is I want to look like my father. I want to look like my brother Jesus, which means I should be saying, hey, I want to pursue, and I'm almost going to sing the song we sang. We did the series on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I should desire those. I should pursue those. I should want to be like Jesus. If I'm going to abide, I've got to say that's the direction of my life. Third choice. I need to also confess and repent my sin. Part of why verse 6 strikes me, part of why verse 9 grabs me, is John is speaking and John uses very statements, boom, but there's a process of life and I'm in a process here. I'm not always going to get it right. So I need to deal with that stuff. I need to ask God to forgive me because my attitudes and my actions are not always what they should be. But again, to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, why would I repent? Because His love is what really gives me life. His love is what gives us life. The cross is not just a symbol of death. It is a symbol that points us to the resurrection. And the only way to have life is in Jesus. Me playing with sin is never going to get me there. Me confessing and repenting and pursuing the fruit of the Spirit because I'm submitting to my King 
gives me life, gives me confidence. Folks, these are not easy verses. They unsettle us and they challenge us. But John says, if you abide, you'll be confident. And he's wanting us to have that today. And that confidence, again, isn't about us. It's about receiving his love, his amazing, astonishing love that is far richer, far deeper than anything available. Please, ponder his love so you'll receive it, so you'll abide in it, so you'll be confident. Let's pray.